Hi, everyone. This is Andy, host of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Now, you guys know that I never try and sell anything on the show. Uh, I don't even run any ads. Uh, really, the only thing that I could ask of you is if you could help us spread the word about the show and about the benefits of including alts in a portfolio, whether you're an investor or if you're an advisor helping clients. So if you have a minute, if you can log into Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a rating and review, it would really mean the world to me. Thanks so much. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens. And today we're talking about hedge funds and hedge funds, hedge fund ETFs. So this episode, uh, I believe it's wrapping up our mini series that we've done on alternative ETFs and liquid alts. So a lot of insights that we've covered on liquid alts in these past few weeks. And very excited that joining me today is Bob Elliott, who is CEO at Unlimited. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. Really appreciate it. And I love talking about hedge funds and, and hedge funds ETFs. I mean, with hedge funds, I feel like even just the word hedge fund, if you're not in that, if you're not in that industry, it's like has this connotation of like a, a secret club or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, so Bob, I'm going to ask you to bring us, you know, give us access into the secret club. But I want to start with your background because I know you've worked with some very interesting people in our space. You've done some very impressive things in your career. So how did you get your start? Well, I, I actually uh, started off uh, at Bridgewater Associates right out of college, uh, which is, uh, you know, many, many years ago when Bridgewater was a bit of, a, a, you know, a challenger uh, asset manager at the time. The thought was at the time that uh, systematic or that macro investing really was uh, was for the savants of the world, the Soroses, the people who could sort of infer how exactly the macro economy was going to work. And, you know, Bridgewater's real innovation in that space was bringing the sort of rigorous and systematic approaches that had existed for a long time in things like equity long short and areas like that, and bring that understanding into the into the macro space. And so when I when I showed up in Bridgewater, there were, uh, you know, it was a few billion under management and, and a pretty small team. Um, and, uh, and you know, over the course of almost 15 years, you know, developed a deep, rich understanding of, uh, of the macro economy, how it works, and then also built, uh, you know, a wide variety of systematic investment strategies, uh, many of which were used in the flagship Pure Alpha Fund, you know, across all the different asset classes. So it was really a... Uh, a great place to start a career because I got a great sense of uh, all the different major asset classes, the strategies, as well as sort of foundational understanding of how to use systematic strategies uh, to basically give edge in investing. So, Bob, Bob, how do you get that job right out of college? I'm like, were you valedictorian or? or... Oh, far, <laughs> far from it. Far from it. I, I you know, I had, uh, 
I had uh, done a wide variety of different things. My my background, my academic background is actually uh, in the pure sciences in in botany. Um, And I recognized uh, I'd done a lot of botany research in my career, realized I wasn't going to be a research scientist for my career um, and, you know, recognized how important I always had an interest in investing and the macro economy and really recognized how uh, important it is to driving darn near everything that's going on in the world. And so I I showed up actually with the expectation of, you know, going for a few years, kind of getting like a paid master's degree type uh, idea. And uh, almost 15 years later, (laughs) I was still there. So, uh, you know, that's, that's how I, uh, how I started, as I said, it was a very, you know, at the time was a bit of a, you know, it was a, it was a challenge organization. Um, And so, you know, was part of the small handful of investors that took it from being that challenger to being, you know, now considered the incumbent. Right. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And so, so you were there in in the early days, you, you mentioned learning how the macro economy works. So um, I think the federal reserve and a lot of economists are also wondering, how does the macro economy work? <laughs> well, I think, uh, well, I, well, first of all, the macro economy works very differently than what you learn in a college, you know, macroeconomics class or, or what uh, a traditional uh, finance, uh, academic finance uh, education would give you. Um, a big part of developing that understanding was sort of understanding and thinking about the intuitive cause-effect drivers uh, of the macroeconomy and asset classes. Uh, and then from there, taking that intuition about, about those linkages, right? You know, if, if inflation comes in above expectations, you would then expect bond yields to rise. That's a simple linkage, mm-hmm. which you can then quantify. What are the pressures on, you know, inflation to rise relative to the pressures, well, relative to what's priced in into the bond market? And you can start to quantify those linkages. And then really all systemization is, is the quantification and the uh and using that understanding in a repeated way over and over and over again, right? In a way that is disciplined, which is a very, you know, the, big, the biggest benefit of systemization is quantification and discipline. So often investors can, can challenge, if, you, if you're a discretionary investor, it can be very challenging to uh, basically pursue, keep, keep true to your investment strategy because you're always being influenced by the incremental information that's out there and you may overreact or unre- underreact, for instance, uh, yeah. to that incremental information. And the, the beauty of systemization is bringing that discipline, helping synthesize a wide variety of information, bring the discipline to execute the strategy as designed. And so that, you know, that really is the, is the core of it. If you can, if you could do that, um, you know, I think the important thing to recognize is in macro, at least like your odds, even the best macro investors in the world are wrong about 55 percent uh, of are wrong about 45 percent of their bets in any one month. Um, wow. But if you do that, if you you know, have the coin on your side, 55, 45 and you flip it, you know, you trade 100 markets that gives you a little bit of edge. And if you could trade that over time you know, at a 55-45 ratio, you're actually end up being, you know, one of the best investors in the world. And so it's you're all the best, about- You're the best blackjack player that's ever that's walked right. into the casino. Well, that's right. It, it, when you mentioned, you know, inflation printing higher and then, you know, um, you know, bond yields going up or, you know, these kind of linkages, spotting patterns, so to speak, 
kind of reminds me of uh like Jurassic Park, you know, the chaos theory, the butterfly flaps its wings in peaking or what because you can you can see those effects, right? I can say that and did I mix that up by the way? Did I get the von yield thing or I always mix that, but no, you got it right. You got okay, it. Okay, go okay, good, good. <laughs> You can see those effects, but here's what I'm thinking is, is, and I'm not a trader, you know, I'm a long-term investor, but as a trader or whatever, there will be that linkage, but then there might be a Federal Reserve might do X, Y, or Z in response, or there might be a response from a policy standpoint, or the market might price this in. And I'm thinking, so then there's every reaction to the initial action. I'm like, there has to be like an order of magnitude, less certainty in the reaction to the reaction you know what yeah, i mean I, I think what what um you know the goal of bringing a, a systematic understanding to the world is not to have a perfect mm -hmm. uh a perfect description of everything that happens because there's a lot yeah. you don't necessarily know and a lot you can't predict the idea of of bringing a systematic approach to the world is to say let me get edge in predicting what the various people involved in the markets will do. And so, you know, and is that short term though? I guess my point was, is that kind of, is that kind of like um, game theory three, like 90 days ahead or six months ahead? It seems like that'd be yeah, really yeah. challenging to do it like five years ahead, for instance. Right. I, I think, I think I agree that uh, something like five years ahead is probably not really the best way to think about it. But I think the idea yeah. of saying that, you know, various uh, folks' actions yeah. are driven by a set of, uh, you know, a set of not necessarily cost-effective rules. They're not rules, but there are motivations. Mm -hmm. There is, you know, whether they have access to resources or don't have access to resources, their motivations. Those are all things that you can think about. I mean, just recently, uh, I was uh, I was talking about how um, how the Fed, you know, people often will look at what the Fed says, yeah. particularly around what they say they will do in the future, and don't recognize that the motivations of the Fed, what the how the Fed reacts is simply a function of how the data that they're seeing happens, you know, what's what's coming in in terms of that incoming data. And yeah. then they have an almost re relatively constrained you know, set of decisions, mm -hmm. decision rules that they use based upon that information, and then they make their decision, right? And so often, you know, I think this this is where you get edge. Often people will focus on either their own view of what the central bank should do or what the central banks or bankers are saying or what they're predicting will happen rather yeah. than just saying, hey, look, if I take the basic inputs of growth and inflation, I understand you know, the central bank has a set of levers, whether it's QE or interest rates, and yeah. I can basically solve for and predict how exactly they're going to behave. Um, so wait, are you telling that me set that of inputs and that set of response function? You're telling me that then the, the chairperson of the Federal Reserve could essentially be a robot or an algorithm in the sense that their proposed action in a set of circumstances is very constrained. So it's almost like a rule set and our, our experience from the past 36 months, I would say, you know, the rule set may need adjusted or we may need better data or, or faster, faster ways to react to the data or, or something. Um, but we're not here to talk about the Federal Reserve or just only the Federal <laughs> I Reserve. I can talk about the Federal Reserve all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask you because, you know, 
in alternative investments, and this is my world, right? The show, the alternative investment podcast, there are so many products, asset classes, strategies kind of underneath that umbrella. But broadly speaking, you have the whole liquid versus illiquid alts. That's kind of one way to categorize all alts. And then another way to categorize them really top level, you have alternative assets and you have alternative strategies. So what, what you're talking about, I think, is, is alternative strategies. When we're talking about hedge funds, we're talking about hedge fund ETFs, mostly falling in that alternative strategies bucket. And when I look at your career and just even hear you talk, I can tell you, you have a passion for this stuff, for the alternative strategies, I guess. What is it about alternative strategies that you find so you know compelling or so interesting or, or such an intellectual riddle? Yeah, I, I find that... Um... At, at its core, you know, what um, what folks who are often pursuing these alternative strategies, and I'd say in particular in macro, is this this understanding of how the whole system works. Um, and it's and it's not, you know, it's not surprising. I come from a pure sciences background, which is really focused on um you know, focus on how do you understand the totality of, you know, uh, a biological system. You could think about markets and economies as just a different type of system. And one that I think, you know, frankly, is pretty neat because we operate inside it. So we're both actors yeah. within it and can understand our own behaviors, as well as abilities to step back and see how the whole system works. Um, and so that's really, you know, that's what I think is really interesting about, uh, about understanding the macro economy and and developing investment strategies. And a lot of ways, what investment strategies are, are ways in which uh, you can express your understanding relative to how the rest of the, the market understands the world, because that's essentially what's priced in. Mm -hmm. And if you get it right, you've demonstrated that you have incrementally more understanding. And if you get it wrong, uh, you, know, you demonstrate that you have uh, an imperfect understanding of what's likely to transpire. And that shows the seeds of new learning, right? The, the, the best thing about, uh, about investing in a macro sense is uh, there is an incredible amount to learn. So, you know, given that you're, you know, at best, right, 55, 45 at any month, that means that you're wrong 45% of the time, which means you have the opportunity to learn something new 45% of the time, which means that, frankly, this is, you know, this is, uh, this is something that is, uh, it continues to be enriching, continues to be challenging, right? Every day, uh, there's a ton more to learn uh, about the macro economy. And so in many ways, from like a career perspective, you know, yeah. it, it's very enriching because you can you could basically constantly be learning. There's a reason why, you know, many of the most famous macro folks that uh, that are around, they're still investing into their 70s and 80s because there's still more to learn, to understand. Uh, and, and I certainly have seen that in a 20 year career and almost certainly will see that uh, through the rest of my career. And that, that's what I mean. Like it's it's clear that this is it's almost like an addictive riddle. It's like uh, it's not just about maximizing profits. It's, it's at some point it's intellectually stimulating. Um, and 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 as you say, even the very best hedge fund managers, you know, in this space are are correct fifty five percent of the time. So I want to talk a little bit. I know we're going to talk about ETFs, but I also want to talk about hedge funds. So when we're talking about a macro hedge fund. I, I sort of understand the concept that we're, we're understanding how the world works. We're finding these patterns, these linkages, 
we are maybe trading or investing in in maybe a hundred different markets or asset classes on various bets. Could we say bets? Um, you could definitely kind of- say bets. Bets. Okay, is okay. sure, sure. And 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 many times it's important. Uh, bets is actually a great way to describe it, and the reason why it's a great way to describe it is because you always want to be thinking about. You have a bet. You have an expected. You know, payoff if you win, if you're right, you have expected payoff if you lose. And it also emphasizes the fact that there is uncertainty, right? And Mm -hmm. so you really do have to think about, uh, think about any trade that you do as a bet in one direction or the other. So, like, even if you're pretty certain, you know, there's a chance the Cleveland Browns might make the playoffs next year. Like, there's a, there's a probable, you know, there's a probability that that could happen. And when you trade markets, what you do is yeah. uh, it's not just about knowing the probability uh, that the Browns will make it, yeah. um, which is probably zero. Um, <laughs> it's also relative to what's priced in. So it's not yeah. just whether you understand it. It's whether yeah. you understand it relative to the collective wisdom of everyone in the world who is mm-hmm. also thinking about that question and essentially pricing. Right. And, and, and so you know that. You might know that Browns fans are are betting with their heart, not with their head, and so you're saying this is a market mispricing of this That's probability. Right. So then, how? So I I kind of get that, and so you're you're looking for alpha by saying such and such is mispriced, or the market, or the aggregate, not really calculating the odds here, or or pricing them in, or, or there's a way to play this trade. So then, what does that look like in practicality? Is that that buying derivatives, futures, options? Like how, how does that trade actually get executed like in financial terms? Yeah, I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of different security styles that, uh, that investors can use in order to express that view. You know, people will um, uh, 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 regularly trade things like futures or swaps. Um, options are often popular for certain traders in terms of, you know, how they construct their views of the world. Um, or, you know, buying and selling or shorting cash security. So pretty much that's that's the beautiful thing in when you think about a hedge fund, one of the one of the great things that they have in their at their disposal is the ability to work across a wide range of different assets uh, mm-hmm. and also to to work across uh, long and short positions and to uh, express that in a variety of different you know forms or or structures. So one more question about hedge funds, and then I want to move on to to some other topics, but with traditional hedge funds, so our audience at the Alternative Investment Podcast, you know, it's a combination of RIAs, high net worth investors, family offices, kind of spanning that whole universe. And certain types of alternative investment funds really open to any kind of accredited investor. And then at the other end of the spectrum, it's basically just institutional investors or very, very large family offices what about a typical hedge fund or are, are they all over the map? You know, are, are they open for accredited investors or do they tend to be more family office and institutional only? Yeah. I, you know, if, if you go back, actually, when I was starting my career, a lot of the, the, the primary interest in hedge funds was really from, you know, the big name institutional investors that, mm-hmm. you know, everyone knows the CalPERS and the, you know, the, the Future Fund of Australia, the Big Sovereign Wealth Funds, all those places. That's basically who the investors were in hedge right. funds. But over the course of the last 20 years, there's been an increasing uh, interest 
and ability for smaller scale investors to to get into many of these funds, whether it's structured as feeder funds mm -hmm. um, or various platforms like the iCapital platform or the equivalent platforms. Um, those different platforms have made the hedge fund uh, the, the hedge fund structure and the hedge fund industry more accessible. The caveat to that is that um, it hasn't necessarily made the most sophisticated or the most successful funds more available to investors. And so what we have actually, I think, is a real bifurcation in the industry where the most successful, most sophisticated funds basically only take money from institutions because they can only take money from institutions because in general, you'd only want to manage money you know, for, for 300 people rather than 3,000 right. people or more. Right. And so you have a challenge for many individual investors or smaller scale investors when it comes to getting a negative selection bias situation or not being able to access you know, the best funds, which may even be closed, not only to smaller scale uh, investors, but even they may be closed to institutions because they've, you know, they've reached their maximum capacity limits. And so yeah. I think that's kind of what we're seeing in the industry is some risk that the newer uh, entrance or the newer availability is also availability that's a bit worse than what you typically see, you know, in a, at the industry level as a whole. So that's really interesting. And it, you know, I want to put a pin in that point because we're going to kind of come back to that whole issue of access. Um, and I'm bringing up some notes here because I want to get to your fund. But but first, I, I also want to talk about how hedge funds performed in 2022. This has been this topic. We've covered that a lot on the show um, it, it, recently. You know, we've kind of said that 2022 is like the year of alts in the sense where and we had the Alt Expo show in December where we had a panel and, and it was like, number one, the inflows across alternative investment landscape, very, very strong in 2022 overall, but also from a performance standpoint, I'm not saying every sector did perfectly or every sector, I'm not saying that, but, but overall, a lot of sectors in the alternative investment landscape, they did live up to the hype. You know, they were, there were less drawdown than you saw in fixed income in equities, uh, for instance, managed futures, those were up 20% last year, right? After uh, like a, a decade of, you know, of not doing too much. And we recently did a webinar on that. So I'll link to that in the show notes, but on to hedge funds. So this specific sector, um, you wrote a blog post about how they performed in 2022. Could you give us the headlines? Did, did hedge funds, did they live up to the hype? Did they do what they were supposed to do last year? Well, I think if you take the overall hedge fund industry, which to be clear, is a compilation of a number of different strategies. So you've got your managed futures, your equity long short, your global macro, all those sorts of different fund styles. Mm -hmm. And you put all those together, what you see is that hedge fund, the hedge fund industry in aggregate did pretty well uh, in a in a challenging market environment, right? It at its, you know, 60, 40, depending on exactly how you Price it was maybe down between fifteen and twenty percent. Um, hedge fund performance uh, before you consider the fees that they may charge, individual funds may charge. Who cares strategies... about fees? Come on, we don't even need to consider fees, do we? <laughs> well, I think I think it's important to recognize yeah, yeah. 
to to start with without the fees because that okay. really tells you how good the strategies are. That's a very important thing. Let's start with the strategies. The okay. stra- hedge funds in aggregate were basically flat, uh, down maybe one or two, per, you know, a couple of percent. Well, that's incredible over, in a year over the course 60. of twenty twenty two. Yeah, it was. Yeah. They did very well. And even if you dig into the sub strategies, you know, a, a strategy like equity long short, which you know did not uh, did not do you know underperformed in the sense of like relative to cash it underperformed it only fell about eight percent relative to pick your equity benchmark down 15 to 20 percent and so even equity long short which like has been panned in the media for some reason delivered like a thousand basis points of alpha relative to passive investing in the market and so when you look at these strategies what you see here is you know they delivered a pretty good outcome in an extraordinarily challenging environment. And it highlights the fact that you know, hedge funds in these sorts of difficult market environments, they're very good at preserving a capital in general, right? Mm-hmm. What they do is they cut their risk, they manage, you know, they hold lower beta exposures, they find you know, value stocks and other value opportunities uh, and move into those positions in order to be defensively uh, positioned through these difficult market environments. I, I wrote that piece, uh, the title of which is, you know, um, hedge funds are playing defense effectively, which is exactly what they were able to do um, during the period. Uh, and and I think it's important to think about the strategies and the goodness of the strategies, because you can that way you can separate, there's a difference between the goodness of the strategies and the costs Mm-hmm. Which are expressed in the in the fees, right? So I, I always like to start with the gross of fees returns to start to think about how good are these managers at actually, you know, navigating the markets themselves. Sure. Okay. So broadly speaking, you've already made the point. There's kind of a bifurcation in the hedge fund industry. Broadly speaking, it's it is strategy by strategy, but hedge funds overall performed pretty well. I mean that frankly, that's a big part of the point isn't just alpha, but it's also strong performance in a year where that traditional 60-40 portfolio has a drawdown. You know, That's when you're thankful that you've invested in alternatives. Um, but, but you've kind of alluded to, you know, if I'm reading between the lines, you know, maybe some limitations or, or problems for some investors trying to invest in these strategies, you know, either access to the top quality managers, top quality funds, or the fees. I mean, and the fees in any investment product, I don't care what the product is. It could be S&P fund all the way to the world's most expensive hedge fund, which you might be happy to pay the high fees because it generates so much alpha. You don't, you know, you always have to look at fees, right? Because as an investor, it's, that's, that's your triple net returns, you know, fees, inflation, taxes, those are part of your total return. So you know, I, I guess to kind of set the table, I want to talk now about your ETF and maybe how it's a little bit different. So I'm talking about HFND. Uh, by the way, that's an awesome ticker. Um, <laughs> yeah, we were surprised that it was still available, but uh, we, we were able to grab it, uh, which is great. Yeah. And I'm just pulling up my notes here. So I have this summary. This is the unlimited HFND multi-strategy return tracker ETF. And if I'm going to read from my notes verbatim, quote, the fund seeks to create a portfolio with return characteristics similar to the hedge fund industry's gross of fees returns and believes the fund may outperform the hedge fund industry net of fees 
returns by charging comparatively lower expensive uh, expenses. Excuse me, Bob. Those are fighting words. So t- tell me about this ETF and the strategy. Well, I think I think it's important to, if you take a step back and you think about the hedge fund industry as a whole. The there are a number of problems, a number of pain points that um, that investors who are outside of that sort of institutional area that a number of pain points that they face. The first pain point is that hedge fund fees are very high. So if you take a typical, if you take the hedge fund industry as a whole, they're typically adding between 300 and 400 basis points of fees on an annual basis. And what that does is it it takes the returns of the strategies, which in general are actually quite good, like 100 basis points better than the S&P 500, over you know over time, mm-hmm. about half the volatility, uh, about a third of the drawdowns. Like that's kind of the that's how good the strategies are and the managers are. But you add three to four hundred basis points of fees, and investors look at something and they say, "Well, I'm not I'm not that much better off than I would be you know doing it on my own." So mm-hmm. you've got a fee problem. The other problem you have is a tax problem. Right. The the problem with an LP structure, typical LP structures, is that uh, is that typically, you know, they're taxed at you know, you get annual distributions, they're taxed at marginal income or or worse. Um, yeah. And and so that's a real problem. Because well, and, and post- Bob, that's with alternatives. That's something, you know, I'm always looking at a product and I'm like, is this designed primarily for an institutional investor? Right. Because if so. I'm almost just going to move on instantly because right, because the tax the taxes is such a huge problem. Right. And then the next problem you have is the diversification problem, which is that if you're a small scale investor, the the you you probably you can't buy into a wide variety or a diverse variety of funds mm-hmm. because you you just are not big enough to be able to invest in, you know, 50, 100 sort of the the range of the number of funds that you'd need to have in order to um, in order to really get diversification, or if you do through a fund of funds, you end up paying fees on top of fees, and it's even worse, right? And then the last thing is to be blunt is the paperwork, right? Which is you know if anyone, I'm sure plenty of people who listen to this podcast uh, have signed up for various alternative investments where there's paperwork upon paperwork. And you're getting I lots only... of K-1s, Bob. You're getting that's a stack right. of K-1s. So much paperwork. And yeah. and if you're a financial advisor, I frankly empathize with the fact that you've got to go track down all of your clients to get them to sign the paperwork, people who are busy, challenging to get in touch with, things like that. And so we saw all those, those pain points that existed in the market. And what we thought was, was there a way to bring the kind of low-cost, diversified indexing approach, which has obviously totally changed stock and bond investing, right? Mm -hmm. Was there a way to sort of take that concept and apply it to the world of two and 20? Uh, And the first step of that is to think about it in the context of hedge funds. And so instead of pursuing that sort of strategy by investing in all these different funds, which you can't really do because the good ones won't take your money and you know you pay fees and then you have to pay yourself and things like that. Mm-hmm. What we thought was, could we create an ETF that leverages our experience having developed proprietary hedge fund strategies with modern machine learning techniques that have advanced a lot in the over the course of the last 10 or 20 years, to develop a technology that allows us to look over the shoulder of the 
hedge fund managers, see what they're doing in close to real time, take that understanding, translate it into long and short positions in various index products, and package that up in an ETF form. And that's really what HFND is all about, which is this idea of uh, replicating, creating a portfolio which replicates the risk return characteristics or you know, replicates the returns, uh, the gross of fees returns of the hedge fund industry uh, you know, in that ETF wrapper in order to address a lot of those pain points. And because we're using technology rather than, frankly, star PMs that you have to pay millions and millions of dollars, we can offer it at you know, about a quarter of the management fee that a typical uh, uh, that a typical hedge fund would charge. And because it's in the ETF wrapper, it ends up being about uh, twice as tax efficient or half the taxes roughly than sure. it would be in a traditional LP structure. Okay. So it's, it's almost like a hedge fund for the little guy. I mean, I know it's not a hedge fund, it's an exchange traded fund, but it's, it's replicating hedge fund strategies in it with machine learning it, hmm, it's, it's almost, there's a couple things going on here. If I'm unpacking it, it offers liquidity. It There's not going to be a minimum investment, right? You can buy right. one share. You can buy, there's lots of investors that have come in that have bought one one single share. You know, that's- Wow, that's amazing. Bucks. That's amazing. Yeah, so that, that there's that side of it. But then there's also, because I'm thinking with the strategy that you're talking about with machine learning, and it sounds to me like machine learning could potentially really revolutionize the whole hedge fund industry. But but even independent of the wrapper here, sounds like you've, you've kind of lowered the cost structure of implementing the long short strategy. Are you are you the only guys, you know, doing that where you've kind of figured out how to be the be the cost? Are you the Costco of long short? Right. That's I mean, that's kind of the idea is you know, if we can create what investors care about in the end is their post fee, you know, their net of fee post tax return, right? Mm -hmm. That's what they really care about. Um, and so by using technology, our, replic our replication of these strategies is imperfect because it's naturally, you know, because it's not, it, we can't perfectly replicate investing in 5,000 hedge funds. Sure. But if we can do a pretty good job of that to, to replicate the, the strategies, which, you know, is based upon the fact that, uh, we have the we have actually uh, between my partner Bruce and I we've we've actually created proprietary strategies and all these different fund styles over the course of I think 50 years of combined hedge fund experience between the two of us. So we know how these strategies are created. We can therefore replicate how the strategies work uh, and what are the types of exposures and risk positions that these uh, investors are taking on at any point in time. If we can do a pretty good job of of replicating that and then offer it at, you know, a lower management fee and a more tax efficient structure, the end result that the investor sees, and to be clear, in a more diversified package, which is a very, a very, very important component of it as well, the end investor sees a much more, you know, we expect that the end investor will see a much more consistent return stream mm -hmm. that, and a, and a higher return net of fees and taxes than they would were they to go out and, uh, invest in a in a handful of individual uh, hedge fund positions, mm -hmm. or frankly, a lot better than what they get if they invested in a fund of fund structure, which layers fees on top of fees. Okay, so I think I get it now. A couple couple last questions on the fund. 
So you're using machine learning to kind of make it more cost efficient, just efficient overall to, to, to make these trades. Is that, is that, that's overseen by you and your partner? You kind of like, uh, the human gut check, I guess, uh, layer of, of supervision of the machine. Of, of course. I mean, I, 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 it's neat that we started this conversation talking about the development of systematic investment strategies, which, you know, both of us have done for, for decades. When you are a manager of systematic investment strategies, um, you know, you, you still have to manage the money, right? That is that right. is a critical component. And that doesn't mean that uh, what we're doing is applying our own discretionary views on markets. We're not doing that. We're using a systematic process to understand, to essentially understand the wisdom of the crowd of hedge fund managers, sure. right? Take that understanding and translate it into those long and short positions uh, that back the ETF. Uh, but we're uh, but that process means consistently monitoring uh, and evolving the underlying systematic process to the extent that we see things that can improve the way in which we we replicate those strategies. So yeah, that that makes sense. And so this is an actively managed ETF, and it's interesting, you know, reflecting again. We've we've done this kind of mini series on liquid alts and alternative ETFs. And my partners and I, we co-founded ETFDB, ETF database back in, I think it was 2009. We were kind of covering, it wasn't the very beginning, but the earlier days of the ETF beat and actively managed ETFs were kind of like, they, they were pretty new and they honestly, they weren't very well received. Like ver, <laughs> wave one of them was just everybody right. kind of was rolling their eyes, so to speak. And I, I might call this like the third wave or even the fourth wave of of alternative ETFs and liquid alts. Uh, kind kind of depends how you count those waves. But you know, do you think that liquid alts and alternative ETFs, hedge fund ETFs, you know, all these alternative strategies, is there finally? Do you feel like the the market RIA's investors are finally really accepting them? I mean, obviously the AUM kind of speaks for itself, but is there more openness? Do you think that's a trend? With liquid alts, it's just more openness to active management. Yeah, I mean, we're really seeing, uh, you know, with our our product, we've got we've raised seventy million dollars and it launched uh, just a touch over three months ago. So yeah. I think that speaks, you know, speaks to the demand and interest both for alternatives in general, mm -hmm. as well as uh, the particular structure and, and approach that we're taking to it. And I think a big part of that is, you know. ETFs at you know in the past were seen very much as the way to run very low cost you know liquid indexing products, mm -hmm. and increasingly uh, investors are recognizing that you can run more sophisticated strategies in the ETF wrapper. There's also been actually some regulatory evolutions which haven't gotten a lot of press outside of you know the real ETF nerd <laughs> community right. yep. that allow. Uh, managers to run more sophisticated strategies um, and in exchange for basically implementing what I describe as institutional quality, common sense risk controls. So that's a good thing. It's a good thing for the industry because yeah. it allows more flexibility and increases the, increases the risk controls that are in place for the end investor. And so that actually is, you know, that, that uh, a number of those regulations passed back in 2020, 2021, and uh, I won't nerd out on them uh, there for you. Uh, but uh, what I will say is it, it actually creates the, it's opened the door for the next generation of sophisticated products. Because overall, if you think about 
ETF. The ETF structure is the best structure for the investor. There's no question about that. It's liquid. It's transparent. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's tax, tax efficient. Of, it's tax yep. efficient, right? Yep. And, it's, and it's executable without having to fill out any paperwork, right? Like all of those things make it much, much better. And because it's also tradable and because it has, uh, you know, there are liquid underlyings, you can trade into it. You can trade out of it. If you like the product, you can stay in it. If you don't like the product, you can just, you know, there's no redemption process, no big redemption process with paperwork. You just right. sell it <laughs> and you're out, you know, that day, right? That's the whole benefit of the ETF structure. And I think, uh, Managers like us are increasingly recognizing that uh, investors and advisors in particular are demanding that they get investor-friendly structures for the products that they're going to buy, right? They know, they understand that low-cost, tax-efficient liquid products are the best thing for the, for their investors. And so they're demanding that. And so I think we're just, I think we're just, you know, we've just thrown out the first pitch, so to speak, mm. on uh, the evolution of sophisticated investment strategies moving from, you know, mutual fund products and LP products and those moving into the ETF structure. And, you know, I think that's very exciting. Uh, I think there's a lot of a lot of great promise available uh, and, and it will no doubt significantly benefit the investor uh, mm -hmm. as this transition occurs. And, you know, ultimately, that's what we should be doing is trying our best to figure out a way uh, to benefit the investor, not to uh, enrich the manager through these through these strategies. Well, that's why the whole industry exists, as far as we're concerned. Yeah, and you know we're almost out of time, but you kind of teed me up for one more question, Bob. You referenced the first pitch being thrown, and I love my baseball analogies, but I do feel like this is a little bit of a, of a battle between hedge fund ETFs and hedge funds in the sense that for some investors they may view them as a substitute. Some investors may want both. And, you know, because mm -hmm. I mean, personally, I can see, especially for a high net worth investor for a family office, you might want some liquid alts and you might also want some traditional Ill illiquid alts in a portfolio. Yeah, you know, I can see an argument for even including both, but do you see, do you see hedge fund ETFs as a whole, you know, not just yours, but as a group and alternative strategies, ETFs, are they going to gain ground at the expense of traditional hedge funds, or is it just, you know, within alts, are they all going to grow? Are they all going to continue growing? Yeah, I, I think we're we're likely to see over the course of the next five or 10 years, a, a rationalization of fees, I think, in general, across the investment management industry. Like when all assets are going up and money is easy, no one really cares if your fee is 100 basis points, 200 basis points, or 400 basis points. It kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Yeah. We've entered, you know, a macroeconomic environment that's very much uh, the end of the era of cheap money, and that means probabilistically lower returns, particularly for beta, you know, for passive investing, and that means, you know, that the the skill of the investor, the actual skill of the investor relative to the fees that they charge, is really going to come into focus over the course of the next, you know, five or ten years, and that's where we're probably in the hedge fund industry going to see a real bifurcation. There are absolutely hedge funds that deserve the fees that they charge. You know, they generate unique and differentiated alpha. 
They may even charge high fees, but when you net that out for investors, it makes sense. But that is also a relatively small portion of the hedge fund industry. And it's a part of the hedge fund industry that's very hard to access for the vast majority of investors, basically only accessible for the biggest, most sophisticated institutional investors in the world. Mm -hmm. For the rest of the world, you know, who, who aren't those big, sophisticated institutions, we're going to have a real reckoning of the rest of the hedge fund industry, where, frankly, the vast majority of the hedge fund industry does not justify its fees, right? And so when we, when we see these various products, these various innovative products that are, that are replicating hedge fund-style strategies, but doing it at a quarter of the cost and essentially half the taxes, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to look at you know, investing in the the sort of average equity long short manager, the average macro manager, where their fees don't make sense in the context of the alternative options that are available. And so increasingly, we're going to see a bifurcation between, you know, money's going to go as much as can to the best, most sophisticated managers. And then I suspect we're going to see a lot of capital flow into these increasingly sophisticated replication strategies put in structures like ETFs. And that, you know, will vastly benefit, you know, that'll that'll benefit investors incredibly because they'll get access to sophisticated investment strategies that are diversified and more consistent and much lower cost um, mm-hmm. relative to where they were, you know, over the past 10 or 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, I cover alternatives, whether liquid alts or I call them traditional alts, which is maybe an oxymoron, but you know, illiquid alts. Uh, I invest in both. I cover both. It, to me, it's not an either or. I just love the existence of new products. When you know, kind of, I think that the point you're kind of alluding to is just that that give investors more choice and put pressure on everyone, every right. asset manager, every asset manager, to just be on their game and to offer the most value as possible within their sector and within their segment. That's a very good thing. So Bob, can't thank you enough for coming on the show today, sharing your insights, not only on hedge funds, but replication strategies and your ETF. So where can our audience of high net worth uh, investors and financial advisors go to learn more about Unlimited and about your fund? Yeah, for sure. The The best place to go is our website, uh, unlimitedfunds.com, where you can uh, check out more information about the HFND ETF, as well as... Uh, some uh, regular commentary that uh, that I'm writing that we're writing on uh, on various investment topics in our blog. Um, the other place you can check me out, sort of the start of this conversation, is you know I I'm still keeping up with macro in a in a fair amount. Part of our uh, view of the world is not to just make the return streams more accessible, but also make the understanding of the macro economy more successful. Um, and so if you're interested, you know check out my pretty active Twitter uh, at Bob E unlimited uh, uh, on Twitter. Uh, I'm there all the time uh, talking about what's going on in the, in the world and, and the macro economy. Yeah. And Bob, I follow you on Twitter and I'll be sure to include a link to your Twitter in our show notes, which as a reminder to our listeners, you can always get our show notes at altsdb.com slash podcast. Bob, thanks again for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database. 
online at altdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you.